Just King Things is a podcast discussing the books of Stephen King in publication order. These are largely horror novels and deal with complicated and often disturbing topics. This episode is on the 1974 novel Carrie and has content warnings for domestic abuse, bullying and body shaming, allusions to sexual assault and rape, racism, abortion, animal cruelty and death, and murder. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome to Just King Things, the podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael Lutz, and with me is my co-host, Cameron Kunzelman. I'm killing you with my mind, Michael. Uh... <laughs> this is what being killed with a mind sounds like. <laughs> this is what killing with a mind sounds like, because on this episode, what are we talking about? We are talking about... Carrie, uh, Stephen King's first published novel, published in '76, uh, mm-hmm, but written written uh, earlier, right? Written, I think, like a year or two before then, um, like '74, '75. Oh no, no, no! It's published in '74. Okay, um, mm. so '1974, uh, his first published novel, uh, and it, this is the first episode of the show. Uh, uh, fittingly enough, right for the for the podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order, we're reading the first book, <laughs> and that is uh, that is what this show is about. Uh, if if you're just joining us, uh, either at our premiere or in the future, we're just going to read these books one after another for the next ten years or so, and we're going to discuss them. Um, is there anything else I think maybe that needs to be factored in for that premise? I think it's pretty pretty. Uh, clear well steve we need you to slow down that's number mm-hmm. one if you're listening uh st- i think we're probably on first name basis with stephen king at this point so steve and if not we will be by the end almost certainly but yeah this uh you know just to say too so we started the show uh one because uh you know you and i michael we uh enjoy the works of stephen king we've been we both have a similar history i'm sure we'll get into that over the course of the show we don't have to do all this info dump here at the top but we've both read a lot of stephen king in, in our lives and uh I think in similar conditions we have done so. And last year, we uh, I said, hey, Michael, for, for the holiday, for Halloween, we should, like, read some Stephen King short stories and then talk about them and, like, you know, release that in some way. And you said, great, which ones do you want to do? And then we did a list. And then I dropped the ball and then we did not do it. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> uh, and so this has been kind of bubbling around for a while uh, of, like, doing something around Stephen King. And so we were thinking about, what what could be the thing that we do for uh, the Range Touch Patreon to kind of drive people toward it and create like a really tangible goal of, of increasing the numbers over there and the engagement? Patreon.com slash Range Touch if you want to check that out. Um, and uh, so, so we put this as a goal of reading all the Stephen King novels in order, or not novels, all the Stephen King published works in order. I guess we should be clear. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and now and we hit it. We hit it actually pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So people really wanted to so hear this. They really want to hear it. Well, uh, this just to give people uh, some expectations. This is not going to be like Game Study Study Buddies, our other show where we speak for three hours about a book. You know, this is going to be a tight hour-ish to an hour and a half of of talking about a book in a freewheeling kind of way. Um, I think this is the kind of show you tell me, Michael. But it it would reward you to also read the book if you would like to. 
but you don't have to read. If that is the sort of thing that strikes you, reading along would probably be a lot of fun. Um, and in some cases, probably a huge ordeal, especially when we get up into the 1,000 plus pagers. Yeah. Um, and, and we're and to keep that in mind, too, we are reading, this is a monthly podcast. Uh, because eventually we are going to get to the point where we're having to like burn through these massive Stephen King novels um, in uh, a fairly short amount of time. So, um, you know, uh, carry, you know, a hot 200 pages, uh, you know, easy to do in, in, in a short amount of time. But the stand or it, a little bit harder to do. So we're giving ourselves a fair amount of time. But that's, I think, all we need to know going forward, uh, you know, and generally with what the show is. What's up with Stephen King? What's up with you and Stephen King, Michael? Me and Stephen King? Well, yeah. uh, I started reading Stephen King when I was probably about 11 or 12, but my mom recommended that I read Thinner. Mm. <laughs> so she started me with a Bachman. Um, <laughs> and you were deeply afraid of pie, of yes. course. And that's, uh... <laughs> uh, no, it, it, it was interesting because I basically, you know, I, I read a lot of like, sort of scary things for kids as I was growing up, right? I was big into Goosebumps. Mm -hmm. We were the Goosebumps generation. Uh, and eventually mm -hmm. I got around to the point where I wanted to read actual horror novels. And, of course, that was Stephen King. That was that was who uh, sort of occupied that space in the cultural imaginary, and I think to a large extent still does. But um, So I was like, well, I guess I want to read Stephen King. And my mom was like, oh, I think you'd like Thinner. And so I read that and had a lot of questions, but I kept reading. And then I ended up reading basically everything Stephen King wrote up through about 2008 when I sort of fell off the wagon. Um, and I enjoyed a lot of it, I'll say. Uh, I've got Goosebumps Generation tattooed on my neck. Great. Um, yeah, that's, that's a big part of my life that I don't really reveal on the <laughs> podcast very often. But uh, uh, yeah, exact same story, basically. Um, I read... I, you know, I was uh, reading scary stories to tell in the dark, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Reading Goosebumps, a lot of Goosebumpery. Um, I'm sure I read, I, I bet I read some like horror fantasy kind of stuff too. But but yeah, you know, in the universe of horror stuff, in the, in the big popular press, and especially where I lived, which is like a rural area, it's not like I could really go to a bookstore. I would have to travel very far to like go to a bookstore to like peruse all the horror. We had a local used bookstore, but it didn't, I don't think it even had a horror section. It just had like a fantasy, uh, you know, fiction kind of thing that horror was in it. Mm -hmm. And that was dominated by Stephen King. Uh, my family had books of Stephen King. My mom read a lot of Stephen King as well. And uh, so, yeah, I think the first one in my library, my school library had like every Stephen King. Novel I was going to say my, so. yeah, the also from, you know, I'm from rural Indiana. Um, my mom had a ton of Stephen King books up in our, our attic. Uh, but then the ones that she didn't have were almost assuredly on the shelf of our, our local library, which I could walk to during the summers. And that's what I would do is I would read like one Stephen King book every two days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's basically how I did it too. So like I, I probably started reading... What, however old you are in middle school, I would say, mm -hmm. I would say that's probably when I start, like in the sixth grade. I read, I read it in the sixth grade. I know that <laughs> for like a fact. I, I remember where I was yeah. reading it, like where I was sitting. Um, I remember reading Hearts in Atlantis in sixth grade and my teacher yeah. being concerned for me reading that book. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so um, yeah, very, 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 very similar story. Uh, but but my first book was not thinner; it was um, uh, Firestarter, oh. which I'm excited to get to because I think that it is it's a book I've not reread as far as I can remember. I, I read it like 
you know, the, my first Stephen King book, and I probably read it more than one time at that time, and then I've never read it again. But uh, it's a book that is like the ultra condensed King for me. It has like all the weird stuff of Stephen King in it, all the kind of like gross stuff, and not like gross in the horror sense, but like Stephen King just does not have his finger on the pulse mm-hmm. of society stuff. Um, uh, but so I'm excited to get to that, but it's going to be, you know, six months or so before we get there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's it. I I kept up to it, uh, kept up with it in a similar way. I probably read everything up to the release of, uh, the dark tower seven, I would say. And then I've read spotty stuff since then. So I read like a couple of the short story collections. I read like Duma key. Mm -hmm. I've read revival, you know, Mm -hmm. like a, a few of those, but I would say I'm probably 50, 50 after, 2005 or so Mm -hmm. well it's interesting that you bring up firestarter as being the condensed king uh because i would actually say i mean i'm going to agree with you i think i i I remember things about firestarter that make it more stephen king uh but carrie is surprisingly stephen king but the whole the whole stephen king deal right here Mm -hmm. in this little old first book basically like everything that is really cool about him as a writer everything that that you love when it when it shows up and you're like yeah it's the stephen king thing uh and then also the things that are not so great also show up here it's it's a real interesting um look at how he, he he doesn't arrive fully formed he does develop but like everything you need to make a stephen king is already here yeah it is a uh if you've never read a stephen king novel before this is a good one to start with uh because it's a stone cold banger mm-hmm. from like top to bottom like i i i was shocked you know you just said a minute ago that when you were a kid you would read a stephen king novel in two days and i read this over the course of two days uh i like started it and i was like oh, i'll read you know a few pages of this thing and i'll kind of knock it out here here to go and you and i were supposed to record like next week just to to give me enough time to read the book and i like blew through mm-hmm. it over the course of of, of a couple of days because once you get started, it really, I mean, it's a page turner. The guy knows how to get you invested in what is happening. And there's all kinds of like Stephen Kingy formal stuff. I think that we'll talk about doing that. But, uh, but before we get into the, the kind of close discussion of, of Carrie, what happens in this book, Michael? I mean, what's, what's our big banner uh, summary of, of the novel? Well, it is time for the five sentence summary where we are going to summarize this book from beginning to end in five sentences. Uh, And since I was the one who came up with this, I will shoulder the burden this time. Okay. So, and it should be fairly easy, because Carrie is not one of the ones that's uh, over a thousand pages long. Carrie is the story of Carrie White, a teenage outcast in 1970s Maine. Uh, She turns out to be telekinetic. She comes from a context uh, where she has been abused not only by her peers, but by her own mother her entire life. And she is kind of a, a, a simmering uh, little pot of rage. Meanwhile, uh, there are machinations happening among her classmates to get her into prom, uh, some for good reasons. And then there's also a kind of a counterplot to embarrass her horribly at prom. And when this happens, uh, she ends up uh, unleashing her telekinetic powers on the entire town and, like, kills 400 people and blows a bunch of stuff up. That's it. That's what happens in the novel. That is the novel. (laughs) Close the door on this thing. All right. Good app. Mm -hmm. See y'all later. Bye.
Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, that is a that is a. It, this is going to be a whole lot harder when we get to the stand. Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, I think that's an, an accurate summary of the book. And what is interesting about it, or about the how that plays out, is how the story is told. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this gets called. Uh, you know, I was reading a little bit about it. It gets called an epistolary novel. Uh, quite often, and I want to know what you thought about that, Michael, because the the word epistolary, right, usually gets uh, it gets evoked in books that are written as letters, right, epistles, mm-hmm. you know, quite quite literally uh, in in the kind of historical context of that, um, or of uh, perspectives shifting back and forth between one or more parties. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what's happening here, and that's kind of not not what's happening here, right? I mean, what, what, do, what do you think about the way that this book is written? Yeah, no, so it's, it's fascinating that it gets called an epistolary novel. As you say, epistolary novels are novels that take place as letters, like letters being written back and forth by parties. But while Carrie has some of this, there are some legitimate actual letters and documents and things that, that show up as text. There are parts of this novel that are... Uh, just straightforward prose, right? Third person uh, descriptions of events that are happening in real time. Uh, So it's actually this weird combination of like regular novelistic discourse and the epistolary novel. Um, And some of the reason for this is that uh, I know like having, you know, read all of these Stephen King things and read biographies and so on and so forth, uh, this started as a short story. As, as a straightforward short story, and as King was working on it, uh, it got kind of longer and longer. There was more to it, uh, and he, at some point, tried to throw it away. His wife, Tabitha, uh, who I think will be a kind of recurring character in our commentary because she, of course, shows up in Stephen King's life. She's a poet and an yes, author in her own I was going to say, she's got her own books. Um, and uh, she fishes these manuscript pages out of the trash reads them over, thinks they're pretty good, and tells King, you know, like, you you could have something here. And so at kind of her, her urging, he writes this novel, or, well, he tries to write it. It becomes a novella, which is a, a shorter version of a novel and even harder to sell. At, but at this point, King has written, I think, like four or five novels, actually, uh, many of which get released as the Bachman books later. Um but he's had no luck, uh, and but he's he's working with this carry manuscript, and he realizes a way to sort of pad it out is to start adding, uh, like excerpts from newspapers that were published after the events of the novel, and so chronologically the story is told out of order in this really interesting way. Uh, we start with kind of a third person. Well, actually, I think we start with um um. A newspaper clipping. Then we move into mm-hmm. kind of actual narration. Uh, so. We know in in the narration of the novel, in the prose, uh, kind of these characters, what their lives are like before the event, and then we're constantly getting snippets from books published after the fact talking about this horrible tragedy that happened, right? The the, the white incident, or the Carrie White girl, uh, and what she did, and how the government has responded, and how many people died. Uh, so right off the bat, of course, like, the novel is uh, doing, like, it, it's pure dramatic irony, right? You know something is going to go down. Like, this novel is like a a watch or a a timer ticking down to an event. And so right off the bat, you're hooked in in that way. Um, Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. There's this thing that Stephen King does, and we're going to talk about it a whole lot, and we're really going to talk about it in the next novel. Salem's Lot is the next novel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. 
Uh, we're going to talk about it a lot when we talk about that book, but Stephen King has this way of writing where um, he kind of zooms in and out, right? So we'll get intensely focalized, what in literary study we call focalization, right? Where you, where you are, uh, the narration and what we know is bound up in the perspective of a character. And then we'll, we that will kind of bounce around from character to character. And then sometimes that gets really broad. So... Uh, in Salem's Lot and in It, for example, I'm just thinking of, and in The Stand too, uh, Stephen King will do this thing where he will like give you the perspective of almost the world or the, a, a city, right? Where you're seeing all these different pieces of the thing at one time. And uh, it, it's it's pretty unique to him. And not a lot of other people write in that way. Not a lot of other people have the confidence, I think, to, to write in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are seeing this kind of proto version of that in Carrie by moving around from these different things. So we, uh, some of the excerpts that we see, some of them are newspaper clippings, like you say, but some of them are like, like popular press books, you know, like imagine you would read like a true crime novel, mm-hmm. uh, or, or a true crime book, a nonfiction book. They're like those, but for the Carrie White incident. That happened and so right. it's not even just like different perspectives on it it's, it's investigative reporting it's people with like certain ideologies and certain beliefs they want us to know that tk or telekinesis is real mm-hmm. and so these are almost like conspiracy theory books that you're reading about it to some some extent we get a lot of of uh, what's called the white commission which is like a state commission that is created in order to figure out what happened. Mm -hmm. And so it is after the fact interviews with people who survive. And so it's not, like you said, it's all, you know, dramatic irony, but it's dramatic irony from very particular perspectives. Um, And it's clear that like all these people have different things they want you to believe. And so part of the work of reading the novel is trying to figure out like, gosh, I know something is happening, is going to happen, but I have no idea what it could be because all of these people have different opinions and perspectives on it. So it's this really, I mean, it really does have this kind of page turner uh, effect to it of like, like, you know from what's happening in the book that something bad is going to happen. And if you have any awareness of Carrie as a phenomenon, the Brian De Palma film, the remakes that have happened, all that kind of stuff, just Stephen King in general in the culture, you know kind of what's going to happen with Carrie, but I'll be honest, right, I've read the book before, I've seen the films, I'm aware of Carrie as a plotline, I still was page-turning to see what happened next, and I think that's a really kind of special way of of approaching the thing. Um, And one additional thing it's very much like not a standard novelist kind of move. I mean, this is something, this kind of uh, novel that's put together in this way is something right out of literary modernism mm-hmm. or the modernists in of the 1920s, 1930s. I mean, John Dos Passos broke the novel by doing this exact kind of thing, and Stephen King is bringing it all back into narrative perspective. So I think from the perspective of craft here and like perspective of getting you engaged... Uh, it's like the dude went out into the art world and got all the tools of it and was like, I'm going to put these back in service of getting you to read wild-ass horror novels. Right. Well, and so <laughs> just a couple of things about, you know, the, the dramatic irony here or like the the way that the the way that this novel works is at, is weirdly not at all dependent on the fact that you know what happens in it. 
Like you know, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, Carrie is telekinetic on the on the second page. The narrator tells you, right? It goes through. It talks about nobody was really surprised when it happened. Not really. Not at the subconscious level, where savage things grow on the surface. All the girls in the shower room were shocked, etc., etc., etc. That's the really like wide perspective, right? The the narrator isn't um, assuming a particular character. It's like the social voice. And then at the end of that section, uh, which is, of course, describing the opening scene of the novel where Carrie is um, uh, harassed and made fun of for, for um, having her first period in, in the shower after gym class, um, the, 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 that section ends with what none of them knew, of course, was that Carrie White was telekinetic. Right? Just bam, second page. And then within, and then within a couple of pages, you know that something happened on prom night, right? It gets mentioned that whatever happened, it was prom night. Uh, so this entire book, you know what's ticking down, but it's kind of the particularities of it and the particularities of the perspectives uh, that make mm-hmm. up this event that really is what draws you forward. Um, a really brief aside, did you know, Cameron, uh, speaking of uh, techniques and, and uh, mm-hmm. literature, uh, David Foster Wallace taught this book in his Intro to Literature classes. It makes sense, to right? Me. I, I, yeah. If I were teaching an intro to lit class, I don't know if I teach this book, but I, but you know, I, I'd probably teach The Shining. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, it's a, it's a. I, you described it to me uh, when we were chatting the other day. I think you said, you know, like a, like a very tight mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like the, the thing goes. You know, you want to talk a lot about some like big, big points of the novel here? Um, do you mean big, like through throughout the whole thing? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, just right up front, I think one of the things that should be said is that uh, the the primary anxiety of this book is gender and very specifically um, like feminine adolescence and sort of like the, the idea of the teenage, like the adolescent girl as a, a, an engine of rage, right? Like a, a boiling emotion. Um, but... Uh, it is not, so if you, if you were to read this book within the first, maybe like 20 pages, uh, you would think that this book hates Carrie just as much as all of the characters in the book hate Carrie. Uh, because in like, for instance, that opening scene, which is hugely humiliating for her, um, nevertheless, the authorial voice describes her as like a toad and bovine. Um, there is an inordinate amount of tension paid to women's bodies. Um, and one of the things, like I was describing this, um, um, to my partner, uh, and, uh, her response was like, you know, like the sort of sense that you get is like one of the, one of the primary criminal things that Carrie is guilty of here at the beginning of this book is that she just like, uh, the, the narrator doesn't want to have sex with her, right? The depersonalized narrator voice, like just finds her totally unattractive. Um, but one of the other weird things about this novel, and I think this is a this is a very particular King thing as well. Um, by the end, Carrie is hugely sympathetic. There's a move that the novel makes where at the beginning, uh, when she is sort of just this character in in the high school, you see her in the way that the high schoolers see her, and then she goes home, and we get her mom, her religious fanatic fundamentalist mother, uh, and uh, you start getting a sense of like. Why does Carrie, like, how does, why does Carrie live in the way that she does, right? Why is she the person that she is? And it turns out she has had a 
horrible, horrible life underneath this woman who is just like irredeemably off her rocker in terms of uh, religion, right? Yeah, I mean, this is a, a Stephen King stock character. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a, that's something I think is important going forward. We're going to talk about you know the kind of Stephen King stock characters as we go along. But incredibly, incredibly religious white woman, mm-hmm. um, and, and particularly not just religious, but uh, uh, like fundamentalist evangelical. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- this is a character we are going to see a million times. Some of the greatest performances in cinema history have been women, and, and these are largely women in, the, in uh, these novels too. But some of the greatest cinema performances we've seen have been in Stephen King films, in which women get to embody this role. Because there's a lot to chew on. Um, you know, the very the 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 character in The Mist, who is this mm-hmm. character too, uh, is is a big one. But right, you get the sense uh, kind of immediately here, and I think we'll get the sense over all of Stephen King's books. Doesn't really care much for evangelical Christianity, um, and is very much responding to like the 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 post nineteen uh, seventies, I guess, um, mm-hmm. kind of uh, expansion of the religious right wing yes. in the United States. Uh, eventually, that leads all the way to like Dick Cheney basically being a villain and under the dome, right? <laughs> um, and like and manipulating kind of uh, religious people in that way. But uh, but yes, I mean she's just she's abusive. Uh, she is locking Carrie in the closet. She's beating her. Um, it's this totalitarian household, and you get the sense that her father was the same way before he died. Um, uh, and and yeah, I mean that I I 100% agree with this kind of move that you're making between us seeing Carrie as she's seen, and then us seeing Carrie in, or having some interiority on Carrie and how she feels. Uh, because I think that that Carrie is you know. Uh, I, I think that it's very easy to have empathy for Carrie toward the end of the book. Um, and I think that's actually why this book works so well and why when she murders everyone in her high school, uh, which is like, you know, a problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not like good. objectively, um, like it's not a great thing to do. Uh, no, it's, it is, uh, that, that's, that's, uh, the just King things, uh, <laughs> stance on the issue. Uh, it's bad. Don't do it. Um, but but you 100% see how you get there. Like, like Stephen King gives us so much interiority on both the people who are torturing her, the way that they see her, the kind of explicit torture that she receives at home, and then her response to it. Um, she, there, there's a line somewhere. Uh, yeah, she, this is kind of in the middle of the book, and she is kind of being accepted a little bit more by is it sue yes sue is who, sue is the Tommy's good one. girlfriend so we'll talk about them in just a second but she's she's kind of being on the receiving end of like some niceness from uh her teacher from this uh, woman sue this girl sue uh tommy her boyfriend all this kind of stuff and she's talking to her mother about trying to go to prom and she says i want to try to be a whole person mm-hmm uh, and basically, she's saying, you know, I've been religiously sheltered. But and part of why Carrie gets bullied, and you know, she's bullied. I mean, she's abused by her her classmates. Part of the reason for that is that Carrie is going to school and just kind of repeating a lot of the religious fanaticism. And there's some kind of commentary here on Stephen King that like the culture is moving away from that, mm-hmm. and so Carrie is out of step and out of sync with the world. And anyone who's gone to, to school in any capacity can tell you if you're out of sync with the world in that kind of way, um, that that is going to create bullying, right? It's not Carrie's fault in any way, but that is the kind of friction that appears 
in that situation. And so Carrie is now, as a teenager, as a, as a young adult, is realizing that she is part of a process uh, that that is brutalizing, and she can move away from it. She can kind of make choices in her life in order to get along better, basically. And she wants to do that. Mm-hmm. And the the fact that the whole novel is built around people not allowing Carrie to change her life. I mean, it's it's really affecting. I, there there's some like truly tragic and and you know classically sad moments in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there's, uh, so there's a kind of, one way that I, I think about, uh, the characters in this novel is it's almost like a little cosmology, uh, because they all have these very different orbits. There's, like, Carrie and her mother and, um, just some, like, additional context for the mom. One of the reasons, uh, Margaret, uh, Margaret White is so, uh, weird is we, we, we can divine fairly early on that this telekinesis thing that Carrie has begun to display now that she's um, begun menstruating, um, like Margaret sees that and it's like, oh, the devil's work, right? Like that's one of the way, and it's not just like fundamentalists believe this, right? It is specifically Margaret White, somewhere in her family lineage, has this recur, like she has memories of, I think, her grandmother um, Mm -hmm. doing weird things, like making things move and like scaring people. Um, and she sees it as, and as starting the fireplace. Yes, right. Which is going to come back like in several novels, uh-huh. but but yeah, is able to summon up fire from nothing. Right. So, uh, like, not only is Margaret White this um, this this religious fanatic, but she has like her religious fanaticism means she is understanding and responding to uh, this development of TK in a particular frame. Because this is the other thing that's interesting about this novel. It is, it is a science fiction novel, right? It is published in 1974, but it takes place in 1979. And we get, like, some science fiction gobbledygook where the narrator is... when There's a bit where um, Carrie is, like, testing out her telekinesis because part of the, the early novel is sort of her, like, doing more and more of it and sort of getting stronger. She's, she's strength training, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. And the narrator talks about, like, what her brain waves are doing and how it's changing her heart rate and her body temperature and all this stuff. Um, so there's that, right? Uh, and then there is uh, sort of the, the town around them, Chamberlain, Maine. Uh, primarily, we get into that through the other high school students. Uh, and I said, there, there are two kind of primary other characters here. One is Sue Snell, who is a girl who uh, takes part in the bullying of Carrie at the beginning and then feels bad. Um, Mm -hmm. And then there's Chris Harginson, who is kind of, she's another kind of stock character. Uh, She's the the popular, spoiled, rich girl from high school who just hates Carrie so much because uh, Chris is very popular and Carrie is not, right? They're they're antithetical Mm -hmm. in that way. It's that kind kind of idea. Yeah, and Chris's, you know, her entire universe is built on bullying characters, yes. right? You know, and, and, and making sure that there is someone there to bully. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, she, she needs her. She's, the, she's a real uh, Kelly Kapowski. <laughs> in, my, in my mind, even though that these things, even though this book predates uh, that television show by 15 years, in my mind, like, th- these two figures are inextricable from one another. So those are, those are kind of, I think, the principal characters really... Uh... Is there anyone that I'm leaving out that you can think of that you want to just give a uh, shout there, out? I, I mean, well, this is the kind of brilliance of Stephen King, right? Is like there are a whole lot more characters and a whole lot more characters that have POV, right? But I don't know if I would ever say that they are uh, 
you know, crucial or key characters, but they do give us like interesting perspectives. So for example, we get several POV sections from uh, and point of view, right? So we get, we get narration or concept or speech or whatever from the point of view of this character mm -hmm. POV um, uh, of Miss Dehardin, who is the, her teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, we get some from the principal mm -hmm. uh, who is being sued or, or whatever. Uh, we get some from uh, the uh, like the drunk who's mm -hmm. going, even though that's in uh, the the what do you call it the White Commission mm -hmm. report. So we get all of this other kind of stuff too. Oh, and uh, Chris's evil boyfriend. Yes, who I'm sure we're going to talk about uh, extensively in just a second. But <laughs> um, but so we get you know big chunks. I you know five ten pages from each of these characters. But like you're saying, they're not really principal characters. They're not really, you know, kind of prime movers or anything like that. And when we get to Salem's Lot in the next book, like Stephen King takes this and puts it into overdrive. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that novel's got, what, 40 characters maybe? Something like that, um, yeah. And, and they all kind of matter in their own little piece, but very quickly they kind of recede in, into the the whole feel of the novel. Mm -hmm. And this is a thing that Stephen King is very good at, right? Is just sort of like creating a little town and then just populating it with people who feel like they should be there like you go into this town it's like yeah there's going to be a drunk who uh like lives in the because it's 1979 or whatever there is a drunk who lives in the apartment above the bar right mm -hmm. um or like the fact that the the high school principal likes to think of himself as like john wayne right when he wants to feel strong that's who he imagines himself as we get that little bit of interiority with him um, we also get, like, other named characters who never inhabit a point of view, right? There are two named characters who are kids who, like, uh, are going to meet the principal because they cut class. Mm -hmm. And they're just there, right? But, like, everyone knows who they are. Everyone knows them, right? That's how they're talked about. It's like, oh, yeah, those two would be the ones who's, who cut class. Um, yeah. It, and I think, I think that's a unique uh, feature of Stephen King's work is that he, he's a very expository writer, right? Like, we get a lot of information just kind of spit out from the mouths of people or from a you know third-person narrator or whatever across his works. I mean, we just get info. He's huge on just telling you about the thing. But more often than not, the texture of that uh, exposition is people. Mm -hmm. So we understand the world through... Uh, so, so if we have some sort of POV section, people are more often than not going to talk about what another person did or that's old mr mcelini's farm or whatever mm -hmm. right and we never see that character it doesn't matter but uh landmarks important events in time uh important actions all of those pass through people in stephen king's universe uh they they don't you know kind of emanate from nothing mm -hmm. and uh, so so in in the way that maybe like i don't know um I was, I was about to say, uh, 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 gosh, what are, uh, like Dragons of Autumn Twilight, <laughs> people, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, uh, the way that those people, right, uh -huh. like might talk about the, the geology of the world, mm -hmm. right, as, as like a, a prime motivator or a thing or like events happening from nothing. There's none of that in Stephen King. It's all passing through human beings. Um, and, and things get messy that way. Mm -hmm. And he, lo he loves that mess. He loves that human mess. Right. Well, in this, so 
touching on sort of the way that this novel generates empathy, right? So we already talked about how it starts out with Carrie. Carrie is not treated well by the by the authorial voice at the beginning. And in fact, there's like this little bit where she um, uses her, like as she's walking home from school after this first bullying, uh, or not the first bullying, but like the one that opens the novel in the, in the um, girl's locker room, she is walking down the street and like a little like a little snot-nosed kid on a bike like makes fun of her right this is how much everyone hates carrie is that even like the eight-year-old boy on the bike is going to make fun of her and then she pushes him off with her mind um in like in just like a very mean little way right it's presented very meanly and then she comes home and then you meet her mom and your entire relationship to carrie changes and even with the mom like the more you learn about uh margaret you don't necessarily become very sympathetic to her but you understand what produced her which is kind of this um combination of uh like religion and just the absolute terror of the things in her life uh and how those sort of like work together so we've already talked about chris harginson the mean girl and this is the girl who uh you know, orchestrates the plot, um, the very famous plot, uh, to pour pig's blood on Carrie at prom as after she has been elected prom queen, um, which of course is like this big symbolic com uh, callback to the incident that opens the novel, Carrie menstruating and um, all the other girls like laughing at her and throwing sanitary napkins at her and things like that. Um, I have never put that together. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, not even once in my lifetime have I thought about <laughs> the fact that obviously these two things are related to one another. <laughs> Wowie. You learn something every day, folks. Right. Well, so that happens, right? And we get Sue Snell, who is kind of like the good popular girl. We get kind of her interiority, uh, which is her realizing the horrors of conformity. We, we get a long kind of digression from her point of view where she's thinking about her boyfriend, um, Tommy, and how, like, you know, basically she's, she realizes, like, oh, I'm probably going to marry this guy. And what's my life look like from this point forward? And she sees herself, like, marrying him and uh, moving into a subdivision. And this is weird. Did you, I'm, I'm sure you noticed this. Um like this the n-word gets dropped very casually as she imagines uh fighting against like uh busing in the school system mm -hmm. um which is just something to note it's it's very weird that like uh <laughs> sue is imagining what her adult life is going to be like and she's like well i guess i'm just gonna be racist yeah i mean there there is a uh especially in the first half of this novel a real both criticism and uh like generic criticism but but a visceral kind of hatred of white suburban america you know what i mean like that's so on page on page 56 it says uh quote uh talking about uh, uh it's talking about sue quote there was a couple like them in every white suburban high school in america mm -hmm. yeah yeah so sue as she realizes like she, she she sees herself conforming to this bullying of Carrie and she realizes, oh crap, like this is not who I want to be. And yet I have set myself up with this very predictable um, conforming lifestyle. And so kind of to make amends, she gets her boyfriend to ask Carrie to prom, right? She thinks, wouldn't it be nice if Carrie could have a night where she felt like she was being included? So that's how we kind of get our sympathy for Sue. Now, Chris, the popular girl, uh, she is very, very unsympathetic up until we meet her evil boyfriend. So we, we get a kind of Carrie mom situation where 
uh, they're placed in, like, uh, a character who we don't like is then placed in relationship to another character who is even worse, who then makes us like the other character more. Um, <laughs> like, we, we... Another very Stephen King move. Yes. So we end up feeling very, very worried for Chris because her boyfriend, who's this guy named Billy, is that right? All the boys are named, like, uh, Billy and Tommy and Jeffy. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, I think it is Billy, yeah. yeah. So it's Billy is, yeah, Billy is... Yes, it is. Chris's boyfriend, um, Tommy is Sue's. So Billy, um, who is on the one hand, um, evil, right? He is like, he is maybe the purest embodiment of sort of unambivalent, like just malice in the book. Uh, and this is another Stephen King stock character, the evil greaser. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and, and Stephen King will continue to produce this character up until now it's so weird because uh when I, I remember first reading this book and not really thinking anything of it because you know i was a teen or young teen or whatever so it's 1979 sure there were greasers in 1979 <laughs> uh, <laughs> um yeah i don't uh yeah i don't but but yeah like this is a character we're gonna uh you know the road virus heads north uh -huh. you know i think of it as a classic well, you uh, know ace merrill from the body yes absolutely oh god Kiefer sutherland yes <laughs> um if uh if we if and I'm, i've done this several times in the episode already i make references to other stephen king things don't feel like you gotta go research over don't feel like you're missing anything out these are just uh easter eggs for people who have already read those books or when we go and read those books and when presumably you read those books you'll be like oh yeah that's the connection mm -hmm. and i promise you i will have forgotten by that point that I said that here, so you'll probably get to hear it two times. But, <laughs> but yeah, this is this is a character. Uh, there's a whole class of character in Stephen King novels that just have a pack of cigarettes rolled up in their sleeve. Yep, like that's that's the sign that someone is not a good person. <laughs> and and they are uh, and and I the, this is fully loaded, and I'm saying it in a very loaded way. They're dumb. Mm -hmm. They're they're not smart people. Um, and that is a huge part I think of Stephen King is that evil people are dumb and if they were smarter they wouldn't be as evil right so chris wants to get revenge on carrie because uh because of the bullying incident the gym teacher reports every all the girls to the school principal and uh they have to take detention or they don't get to go to prom chris refuses to go to detention therefore she does not to get to go to prom uh, and her sort of response to this is like, well, I need to like, you know, pull some sort of prank on Carrie, right? I just need to like rub salt in the wound. And then she turns to her boyfriend who she is dating because her dad hates him, right? Because her boyfriend, this guy, he, he drives like this crappy hot rod that's like falling to pieces. The floor is rusting through. There's like the the first detail you get about it actually is just so funny i think it's like there's there's like a, a pink fur uh thing on the steering wheel uh it's got one headlight but 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 notice this right uh we can remember all of these things about a car that de that describes a character right like this is a stephen king thing right there's this transitive property of tommy or not tommy but billy mm -hmm. is his car is his character right uh, so on the one hand, this car is supposed to be like this embodiment of, of his, his evil, of his, just his malice, right? And he's, he's like very poor, right? Working class. Mm -hmm. His dad beat him when he was a kid. Um, he goes out at night and, uh, like, uh, runs over dogs when he gets upset. And, uh, Chris wants to pull this prank. She, she sort of pulls Billy in and then 
Billy through sort of like strength of personality uh, or, you know, like the strength of his evil or whatever, just sort of takes it over. Right. He, he settles in because she um, at one like late in the novel, like during prom night, he's explaining to her like, you know, listen, this isn't just a prank. This is assault. And if you run or if you get caught, like if you run, right, I'm not going to come find you. If you get caught and you like squeal on me, I will kill you. Yeah. Right. He's just like totally ruthless in that way. Very much like an escalation of uh, and, and the point, right, of the whole thing is that this is a prank that is above and beyond like pranking mm -hmm. right this this is something that is a uh carrie is trying to get her life on the track that she would like it to be and this is this is effectively murdering carrie i mean mm -hmm. you know as far as like the way that the plot moves and so stephen king knows that you know into the book style stephen king knows that this is murdering carrie and so treats it the whole time as if it is murdering carrie mm -hmm. and so it, it becomes this kind of thing of where it is both at the same time a uh high school prank and an extremely awful thing that you can do to someone else mm -hmm. um and the novel treats it that way with this kind of like bipolar kind of uh relationship mm -hmm. the uh yeah, I, I, uh, Billy just just being like objectively evil. Um, or, I mean, what do you what do you think of the strategy that you just brought up? I mean, you said this a little while ago, uh, but but I want to want to bring it back in focus for just a second, right? The idea of like you take a character who who we we are uh, biased against a little bit, and you put them up against someone more evil, and then they become more sympathetic. Do you think that happens with Chris and and Billy? Um. In the sense that, like, you understand that Chris is at risk. Does that make mm. sense? Mm -hmm. Right, so during those scenes... I mean, awful stuff happens to her as well during the novel. I mean, she's she's assaulted, she's right. beaten. Right, well, yeah, like, it's, there's... It's truly bad. Like, the one of the things that uh, is mentioned fairly early on is, like, she started sleeping with Billy because she was fairly certain that if she didn't, he was going to, to rape her eventually. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um... And, uh, it's, it's, uh, like, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I, I don't know what I think about the strategy overall, other than like the, the limits become immediately apparent, right? Because yeah. we've already talked about how good King can be when he steps into the high school principal's mind and gives him just like that little thing he needs to be a person. The fact that he thinks of himself as John Wayne, even though he looks nothing like and acts nothing like John Wayne, um, it becomes a choice for the writer to not give that to a person. And we actually get that a little bit with Billy where it talks about like his comb, mm -hmm. his really yeah. gross, greasy comb that he uses to comb his hair that his dad gave to him. But because it's like his dad who beat him, gave him this comb and like, is sort of, it's, it's, this is another Stephen King thing, right? That like, uh, if you, if you grow up knowing only violence, then you will grow up to do only violence. Yeah. I mean, he, he absolutely, there is a, uh, education. This is kind of what I was talking about earlier around like people who are dumb being evil in Stephen King mm -hmm. books, right? Like there is a moral equivalence of like what your social context is wholly defines any capability you have. Right. So if you, if in a Stephen King book, 90% of the time, unless you're the protagonist of the novel, if you were beaten growing up, you are going to grow up to be evil. Mm -hmm. Um, if you were uneducated, you're going to do bad stuff like that that's just kind of like this the 
the moral uh, distribution of Stephen King's universe, which is really interesting in context of what I said earlier about like his uh, critique of like white suburbanness, mm-hmm. because uh, Stephen King loves the values of the post nineteen fifties white suburb. Uh, but like hates the the aesthetics of it. Yes, uh, you know he is he's nominally anti-racist. I mean I, I don't know if he's entirely successful at that. We're going to talk about that a lot over the course of of this podcast. But but he at least he sees himself to be as anti-racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sees himself as being able to competently write women as characters. Mm-hmm. Um, he sees himself as a kind of New Deal Democrat. Mm-hmm in a broad sense, right? So he believes in economic justice in some form or capacity, uh, believes in the American dream in ways like that, uh, believes in education strongly, mm-hmm. you know, like these are characters, his, his heroes are overwhelmingly educated mm-hmm. um, in, in a general sense, uh, you know, loves to talk about writers uh, mm-hmm. uh, as a thing, you know, obvious, obvious Stephen King inserts, right? So it's all these values of like, of, uh, uh, educational moral uh economic uplift um but then the negative of all those things is always the villain right Right. so um so it means we go back to the well and often those get the put into like the form of evangelical right-wingers or just right-wingers in general um but it does mean that there creates this like i'm saying this kind of moral universe in which like if you didn't go to college, you you have a good chance of being evil, right? <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, if you're a woman, you have a good chance of not being morally complex. This is do not do this. No one do this. Imagine like the Stephen King thing ex- extrapolated out into like a D and D style universe. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it very. It, it's like the greaser class. Yes. Right. Like negative two to intelligence <laughs> plus two to constitution. Like a hundred percent. Yeah um yeah no it's uh it's as so when i said at the beginning right that this book has everything that is really good about stephen king and also i think a good number of the things that are sort of his weak points um this is what i meant right we we get the good and the bad very much mixed together uh and this narratological sort of fiction making uh outlook that that we're describing um is is clearly just it it deals in exaggeration Right. That's sort of one of the key things, Uh, like the way the fact that when we start and we're in the girls locker room, um, it feels very cinematic. Right. Because we get all of these little bits of uh, conversations that these girls are having amongst themselves. Right. My sister said this and this and I'm going here and then and you can you can imagine the camera like sweeping through the room, like passing each conversation. You get a little bit of it and then you stop on Carrie. this this is very good in a writerly sense in that it's kind of like rapid and it gives you a strong sense of place and character uh but it also means you deal in a shorthand that is more often than not going to dehumanize people um and that's sort of like what goes on with this entire like description of how gross carrie carrie's body is at the very beginning and it's the same thing that happens with margaret white being this caricature of a person and so on and so Mm -hmm. forth but it makes it more to touch on what i said earlier uh you choose to sand those edges off Mm -hmm. right and it makes it clearer like where the author has chosen to sand off the edges and where they haven't yes 100 percent uh, especially, yeah, when the ceiling is so high, mm-hmm. uh, you know when he's not getting near the ceiling. So, so Carrie, uh, you know, first half of the book is uh, pre-prom. Mm-hmm. Second half of the book is is prom, prom, and, and the afterward. 
think we've talked about the pre-prom pretty well. Is there anything running around in your head you wanted to say about any of that? No, I, I think we're basically covered. Uh, and then prom is, like, it's, like, literally the book basically splits in two halves. Pre-prom and then prom night itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and prom night itself is the main event, the thing that everyone is here for, and it delivers in spades. Yeah, it it starts with a... Um a uh what do you call it? well i guess it's a little bit earlier but it, it kind of it comes to fruition here you know tommy picks up uh carrie from her house mm-hmm. you know that kind of thing the way that that scene is written when she's waiting for him and thinks he's not going to come because she thinks you know a prank is being pulled on on over on her uh-huh. prank is being pulled over on her i don't think that's right but um she thinks she's being pranked uh that is some of the best writing stephen king has ever done Yes, no, so this is, to touch again on the discussion I was having with my partner, this is the precise moment, after I read the beginning of the book and we discussed it, right, that the, the locker room scene, I then went to this scene, and then I was like, and here's how Carrie is treated by the, you know, middle of the novel. Like, so tender, so close to her, to her mind, and her fears, and her anxieties. And, you know, the, 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 Tommy shows up and he like pins her his corsage on her and everything and he says uh you know you look beautiful and then the narrative voice says she was yeah right yeah which you can call that corny but like it is this moment of validation for this character who has received none uh, there, there's like this double thing happening here right one it's like uh like a 1990s uh she's taking off her glasses and she's hot now you know right. that kind of thing like that's going on uh and she sews her own dress right and all this kind of stuff um but then this is on 157 uh, uh king writes uh she felt actually physically her whole miserable life narrow to a point that might be an end or the beginning of a widening beam mm-hmm. and like that that is uh, stephen king doesn't get better than that like that that the the full encapsulation of her as as a character mm-hmm like the whole thing crammed into like a sentence fragment, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you get all these tender moments, right? Uh, like you're just talking about that that scene. You get all of that, and then it's immediately blown to shit. I mm-hmm. mean, it was it literally exploded. Um, yeah, by by the prom scene. Yeah. So this, it, one way of thinking about this novel is that it's just an EC horror comic writ large. <laughs> Yeah. Right? Um, Because EC Horror Comics, uh, if you're not familiar, these are the comics that give rise to Tales from the Crypt, um, which becomes an HBO series in the 90s. uh, uh, And I think that's how most people encounter it. But these are uh, comics that King was reading when he was very small and uh, clearly have had a lot of impact on on his uh, development. Um, But how those stories usually work is there's ostensibly a moral component to them, right? A character... Like, your typical Tales from the Crypt or EC horror comic is going to give you a situation where here are some characters, some are good, some are bad. Um, The bad character, say, is going to kill a good character uh, in order to get something that they want, and then this is going to have horrible consequences when a zombie shows up or some sort of monster shows up or, or, or whatever. But the actual, like, moment of death is going to be lovingly uh pondered over right that's that's the end of the comic is when you see the corpse of the of the evildoer um dismembered and lying on the floor right Mm -hmm. like that's the big gross like it is simultaneously um like supposedly like the moral consequence right this is this is the 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 moral of the story 
but the delight that you, the reader, take in it is really like the grossness of it, of being able to see this stuff um, sort of splattered out with the pretense of it being kind of like morally uh, salutary for you in some ways. Um, and this novel follows that pattern where by the end of it, by the time prom night happens, um, we are just, we are seeing Carrie, and it's like quite explicitly like her, her understanding of what she is doing, we are seeing Carrie destroy the thing that has spent her entire life hurting her, which is the world. Yeah. Yeah. So she, uh, she, they, and it, this is also like beautifully done too, right? So everyone is voting. Chris uh, has gotten everyone to vote for Carrie and Tommy for prom king and queen. They get up on stage. Oh, you mean uh, Sue? I'm sorry. I think I think Sue uh, got him to vote. Well, I thought Chris did it because because then otherwise how would how would she be able to uh, oh. make sure they were on stage? I thought it was one of those things where like uh, Sue was going to do it and Chris knew Sue was going to do it mm. and therefore set this up or something. I I, I do not know. Uh, well, uh, I mean. It, it happens in some way, right? Yeah. But this is also kind of the funny thing, too, right? We can talk about, like, all of the, like, cool aesthetic parts of this book. But this is an important plot point we just don't have clarity on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's kind of Stephen King, too. <laughs> It'll be like, I don't know. I guess, you know. It, anyway, they, they do it. And it, it's uh, written in this really great way where, uh, you know, everyone votes. And then uh, there's a tie between another couple and then Carrie and Tommy. Mm -hmm. And then there's a revote. There's a runoff, and Carrie knows something bad is going to happen. She tells Tommy, "Don't vote for us. Do not vote for us." And then he does it anyway, and they win by one vote. Mm -hmm. Ah, yep. right. You know, so like, oh, disaster! It's so good, so well done. Of like, disaster almost averted, and then you know, tragedy is coming. But uh, they get up on stage. Uh, Chris comes. She pulls the bucket. the The blood comes down. Uh, gets all over Carrie. Gets all over Tommy. The bucket falls clonks tommy in the head it then kills him yeah uh and we get this beautiful this is also very kingian of two pages about the end of his life uh yeah he gets clonked on the head he falls down it tells us a little bit about the context and then we get this great line where it's like uh by the time that the building caught fire tommy was already dead or something like that yes uh, great stuff but yeah so so carrie uh gets doused in blood runs outside and then kind of comes back and locks all the doors mm -hmm. and then uh, sets off the sprinklers and then uh, sees the like power lines and then uh, breaks those power lines and then makes everyone in the thing get electrocuted. Mm -hmm. And that causes a fire, right? It's the band's equipment, right? The band yeah. that is playing prom night. Yeah. Um, yeah it's uh, a really like, cool moment i mean there's a, there's a reason this when when the de palma film comes around right there's a reason that this becomes like the iconic scene because it is iconic it's just like yeah. such a such a stark image of the prom king and queen up on the stage prom is happening normally and then the blood falls and all like you know all of these sort of like things that are deeply embedded in the american psyche about like prom and prom king and prom queen and so on and so forth um get uh like just run through the ringer here and then we get to watch the entire prom burn down and then the town around the prom burns down however there is an extremely strange moment um during this we we uh jump out of the present narration right the um 
the 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 narrator telling us what is happening for real and we move into one of these epistolary sections where one of the survivors of the prom is talking about what it was like seeing this happen right so we move out of the the general voice into a specific person responding to this um and she describes things as you would maybe expect but the thing that really jumped out at me the thing that was very very strange is that this woman her name is like she's one of the classmates her name is like norma i think uh and this is a book that ostensibly she writes later on i think in like the 80s that's kind of like her memoir of the night um she talks about how when she was a kid she had a children's book that was based on the um very racist disney film song of the south right the 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 Disney movie sort of famously so racist that Disney has like obliterated it from from like the cultural landscape or tried to right they won't release it and so on and so forth um this this character Norma uh when she looks at Carrie splattered in that blood and we, we you know this from the De Palma film right this is that shot of her like standing there in blood and her eyes open um and uh the this character describes uh Carrie as the tar baby from the song of the south which is like again a very racist uh sort of collection of stories that come out of the minstrel tradition uh where people would have like white people like white performers would have donned blackface in order to uh uh you know impersonate black people and uh all of these horrible horrible stereotypes about them um and that's just like, this very weird moment of, like, the worst thing about Carrie here, right? The thing that inspires terror is that she gets kind of, like, pseudo-racialized. Yeah. Yeah, in her moment of, of killing all of these suburban white kids, she is raced as black. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that's the equivalence being made here. She also, uh, I went and looked this back up this morning because we were talking about it the other day, uh... Uh, it, a, a few pages later, uh, she gets called, this is a quote, like an Indian dressed in war paint, too. So she is racialized in, in a general sense of just she is raced. She is just made non-white by the book. Well, and then by uh, the end of this sequence, of by the end of the sequence, uh, she's like, you know, uh, telekinesising the, uh, um, the, the wires around. Mm -hmm. And they are described as rising like cobras from the basket of an Indian fakir right three things in a row uh at this moment racialized carrie and i just think it's important to sort of like mark that out especially as like someone who writes horror fiction who has read a lot of it um and has like very strong thoughts and feelings about the genre american horror very often operates from a white perspective uh and the 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 object of horror is in many ways going to at some point get racialized or it's going to butt up against some sort of racial undercurrent and here we see that happening like straight up so uh yeah promise toast and chamberlain uh follows soon thereafter carrie goes like everyone's getting electrocuted everyone's dying and you know getting burned up uh the people in the town know that something is up because they're seeing the explosions uh and carrie goes home she, she starts on sort of her journey. She, like, walks home. And as she walks, uh, she is unscrewing all of the, the caps on the, the fire hydrants. Um, and she walks past gas stations and starts, you know, like, she breaks the, the, the mains. And so uh, gas is pumping out into the street. And she's bringing down power lines. And 
everything is going to help people we get uh little like uh excerpts uh from interviews from like the white commission uh where people who were just at home this night right like what did this look like for them and what was it like when people started going out into the streets and then the power lines started coming down um and just the sort of the total chaos of this whole thing uh and it's this grand gesture of obliteration uh that is like carries a like Carrie's will, and this is this is a thing that I did not remember about this book that I think is really cool. Um, everyone knows it. Like Carrie's psychic powers are operating uh, like on all cylinders now, right? Like they are punching so fast that people are hearing her thoughts, and they're hearing them as if they're just like their own thoughts. We get that. Um, the interview with the drunk, for instance, is like the 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 government official or whatever is interviewing this guy, and he asks, you know. Uh, you looked out the window and what did you see? And he's like, well, I saw the white girl walking down the street, um, you know, rubbing her hands on her on her dress. And she was thinking about how there was so much blood and she was going to pour blood over all of them and that they deserved it. And then the interviewer is like, how did you know this? And the guy's just like, I just knew it. Yeah. Yeah. Because she's broadcasting uh, the. Well, then Carrie goes home mm -hmm. uh, and murders her mother. Yes, her mother has been waiting to murder her, uh, for yeah. what that's worth. Like, the, the second Carrie left the house to go to prom, uh, Margaret uh, leaves her little prayer cubby um, and goes to the kitchen and gets the butcher knife. And as she's sharpening it, uh, and this, this is, feels like a very Stephen King thing too, right? As Margaret is sharpening the butcher knife, she slices her own hand. And then instead of being like, oh crap, I just sliced my own palm, she's like, good, good, blood on the blade, yes. Yeah, this is absolutely... All of Stephen King's villain characters, well, not all, but the vast majority, hit a point in the novel where they have to become not just evil, but cartoonishly evil. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, they start doing things like that, right? Or, <laughs> or you know, cutting themselves on purpose, or, um, you know... Uh, I mean, there are some, like, deeply horrendous things that, that characters do to themselves and other people in the, in the fit of a... Uh, Stephen King doesn't know how to end a novel, <laughs> you know, moment. But but that doesn't really happen here because uh, Carrie does that, uh, kills her mother, gets stabbed kind of brutally in the in the shoulder, and then uh, makes her way to kill Chris uh, and uh, Billy. And this is a Stephen King thing, too. Good God. <laughs> yeah. So. So. A couple things. I don't, I don't know which part you're... I'm laughing about your reaction, not about what happens, which is truly awful. Okay. No, so, so, so. Uh, so Carrie goes home. She stops her mother's heart with her mind. Bam. Mm -hmm. Mom's dead. Yeah. One of the things that has bothered... Uh, like, one of one of uh, Margaret White's bugbears is roadhouses, right? She's always going on about the roadhouses where, like, the sinful music is going on, which these are things that I, I assume still exist, but feel, like, so incredibly dated. The idea of a roadhouse... Um, which of course is a, a like sort of country bar, uh, where maybe lots of unsavory characters are going to show up. Um, there's going to be a lot of dancing and so on and so forth. Apparently yeah. her well, parents like owned one. Yeah. Patrick, Patrick Swayze cleaned it up. Yeah. 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 As I say after Patrick Swayze cleaned up, uh, the roadhouse, um, all, all roadhouses, uh, got, got substantially better. But yeah. anyway, so this is a thing that like one of, one of the things Margaret White obsesses over, it turns out there's one, like, a short walk from her backyard across the interstate or something. 
Well, that's what. So this is the weird thing. It is both a short walk and it's like six miles as the crow flies. Yeah. So, so is it, you know, it's this kind of uh, movie magic moment where uh-huh. on one hand it's pretty far away, but on the other hand, not really. Uh, right. So. Um, and so uh, the other thing we need to know about this roadhouse is that Chris Harginson and her um, awful, awful boyfriend, Billy, go there to have sex. That's where they hang out. That's where Billy hangs out. And this is also where kind of the um, the moral superstructure of the novel, despite being sort of opposed to uh, Margaret White in every single way, nevertheless validates her because the evilest character in the novel aside from her, is the one who frequents the roadhouse and has, like, a special room there where he takes his girlfriend. Yeah, um, Stephen King's right in the middle. He's, yeah. he's, like, the definition of, like, a moral centrist, right? Mm-hmm. Like, bo- both are wrong, okay? Bo- both Margaret Wright and the roadhouse are wrong. Right. And then it, it also ties into, and this is the thing that will come in um, again, like, in later Stephen King novels, which is the... the Stephen King moral universe, um, aside, like, in, in its, like, most abstract sense that evil is going to cancel itself out in some way, right? Like, evil will always, like, find a way to fall into the trap it has set for itself. Evil is the left hand of God, right? There's a, there's actually a, a strong uh, historical Christian way of reading this. Um, so Carrie goes to the roadhouse, um, and I is it clear why she's going? Because this wasn't a thing I was, like, certain about. Does she know Chris and Billy are there? I think that it's just, like, uh, telekinetic and, and uh, um, you know, mind-reading magic at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Like, she, the, these are the two characters left at the end of the novel that need to be taken care of, and so she is making her way there. And so she doesn't get all the way there. She gets, like, to the road, and they are coming toward the town, and so that's where they meet. But mm-hmm. I, I, as far as I know, uh, you know, and again, that's kind of the thing about the page-turnerness of it, too, right? Like, you really are reading quickly in Stephen King books, and so sometimes it's, it's hard to know. But in any case, I'm not quite sure. They run in, into each other in on the street basically Mm -hmm. yep uh uh billy is in his like awful shitty evil car and he's going to run down carrie and she psychics the hell out of him yeah it's rad boom so they're gone right like the car explodes like the gas tank catches on fire um and then also coincidentally sue snell the one who the, the girl who sort of had her change of heart has been wandering around town since prom went to hell um, she's mm-hmm. been trying to figure out what's going on or find someone to help her. And I think she clearly states in, because we get excerpts from him, her memoir, like that she wrote about this. Um, she, I think, is like almost like drawn toward Carrie psychically, right? She can like sense yeah. her. And so she shows up in the parking lot just as Carrie collapses uh, and then dies. Because it turns out uh, doing all of this crazy psychic stuff building on the the stuff we got about her brainwaves and whatever at the beginning um, has a physical effect on her and her heart just gives out. Yeah. And she's bleeding profusely. Also that. Oh yeah. No, her, her mom did stab her um, in the shoulder. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a combo and, and you know, this is very much a, 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 some, a point to where Carrie is rendered almost fully inhuman. Right. So she's like talked about as like withered and bent over and all this kind of stuff. I mean, she, she's been kind of, she has, thrown her entire being and her entire kind of life force into killing all these people and so yeah but then sue shows up and then uh her and carrie have this like you know mind meld moment where she Mm -hmm. gets all of carrie's emotions and this is like some of the coolest stephen king ass shit on earth 
she like mind links with Sue as she's dying. Mm-hmm. And so she gets like all this emotion of like what it is to die. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's like being dragged down with her in it. It's it's a it's a very cool scene as far as like probably one of the best endings Stephen King's ever written. <laughs> right. Because uh, and if you're not familiar with this, not familiar with King, Stephen King, it's just kind of a fact that the guy is not very good at ending novels. Like it's not a criticism, but you know the last tenth of every Stephen King novels is you, you have a better chance than not of being a little bit disappointed at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not good at closing it out, but I think that this closeout pretty good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say, so another bit of Sue's character, uh, she is late on her period. Let's talk yeah. about themes. Uh, she's late on her period. She's been sleeping with her boyfriend. She thinks she might be pregnant. After Carrie dies, after they have this mind meld, the last kind of proper line of this narrative that we get in the book is uh, um, uh, Sue finally having her period, right? In the description of, of the menstrual blood running down her thighs. Which is a choice, right? It's it's mm-hmm. a I don't know, right? Like okay, right? We've got the the period at the beginning. We've got pig blood at prom, and now we have this. Well, so so there's all kinds of things I have. I got two big questions for you, Michael. This is one mm-hmm. of them. So I'm glad that we, we that we talked about this this the ending of it. Do you think this is how I read it? So I could I couldn't put together uh, Carrie having her period in the pig blood, but I'm putting this together. Okay. Mm-hmm. Do you think that Sue was pregnant and with Tommy's baby? Tommy is dead. Tommy was also, you know, Carrie's uh, uh, date to the prom. Mm -hmm. Do you think Sue was pregnant and then Carrie gives her an abortion here at the end? I, that is my reading because there is a bit earlier in the book where um, there is an extended metaphor about a fetus coming to term. That seems like, and there's also this other stuff where like Margaret White, um, you uh, know, Carrie's mom says like, oh, I should have, you know, I, I shouldn't have had you, right? I should have killed you when I had mm-hmm. the chance. And mm-hmm. um, this is this is a, a, a little current that runs underneath this novel. Kind of an antinatalist statement. Yes. Other question, other big question. Do you think that Carrie's mom is psychic? And that is why she is so uh, religiously focused. Because she can see all the like bad stuff in people's brains that they're thinking. That is interesting. Uh, hmm. I am not sure. I can tell you. I can tell you. Mm-hmm. Mama White uh, is a Lovecraft cultist. <gasps> there is a bit, very, very briefly, where Carrie can overhear her praying. And she's talking about God sending the three-lobed burning eye. To, to like punish people um mm-hmm. which is a like specifically like that is the one of the epithets of the lovecraftian um evil deity uh nayarla totep mm. steve you scamp right so there's Gosh. a sense that there's a sense that uh margaret white's christianity is um not really a a, a normal type of christianity um, mm-hmm. But I don't know. It, it's interesting, right? The idea that uh, she might be a little psychic herself uh, definitely adds depth to that character. Uh, and there's all kinds of stuff we didn't have a chance to talk about that I think is cool. I think the uh, the scene where Carrie, when she's a child, uh, like summons stones mm-hmm. to rain on the house. I think that's all very cool. Yeah. And that's a thing that King reuses a couple times too. that setting. Yeah, it's good. It's good yeah. stuff. But now we got a couple segments here at the end, Michael. Yeah, let's uh, let's get started. This segment is called "My Favorite Kingism." 
This is the segment where Cameron and I are going to independently choose one sentence uh, that we have found in the novel that we think is a, a good example of a kingism, which is to say a particular tick of his prose style or his narrative voice. Um, basically, this is, a, this is a Stephen King sentence, right? Only Stephen King could have written this. Uh, so do you have your, have your sentence, Cameron? I do. Okay. <clears throat> I tweeted about this, so people might already know it, but I wanted to cry, but it was too real to cry about. <laughs> that's just Stephen King, like, telling you what is up. <laughs> like, yeah. And that, that's the kind of thing that Stephen King does. He makes sure that the moral and the emotional stakes of everything are, is happening all the time. If I had a runner-up, if I had a, if I had a, had a second one, it's, it would be the, the se section. It's not really a sentence, but it would be the section where uh, Sue in her memoir keeps talking about we were kids. Mm-hmm. Very reminiscent of the stand, very reminiscent of like things happen in the past you can't control and yet you have to live after it, you know, live in the wake of, of awful things. Also mm -hmm. another huge Stephen Kingy kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, my sentence uh, is from the beginning of the novel. It's actually from the section where the principal is meeting uh, with the gym teacher. Uh, and some context here is that the principal is accidentally, like, knocked over his ashtray. And so he's, as he's talking with the gym teacher, he's, like, uh, sort of fiddling around on his desk, like, trying to wipe up these ashes. Um, and he asks her to hand him that little brush there, Miss Desjardin. Yes, that's it. She handed him a little brush with the legend, Chamberlain Hardware and Lumber Company never brushes you off, written up the handle. Uh, and this is uh, one of those little bits of, like, this is a very Stephen King thing of adding just the right amount of texture to a scene. Not only is this situation, like, in many ways, Carrie the novel is, like, a social comedy. Like, yeah. especially early on. Like, there's a lot of, like, sort of small town social comedy happening. Um, and this in particular is, like... Uh, you know, we get we get the fact that uh, the the principal has this little brush that he got obviously as like a freebie from the local hardware store. Like the hardware store like printed a bunch of these off, so like everyone in town has one. So we get the sense of the hardware store, kind of the the personal relationships among people, and then sort of the um, very like social realist like sense of like these are the things that like these are the objects that are in the lives of the characters in this novel but also like the lives of the reader right these are things that i have at home that you have at home these are things you pick up moving through kind of like mid-century middle-class american life i i also love that scene that that there's an additional additional layer of kingism to that scene because uh it's right after carrie has been in his office and she's upset and she knocks the you know the uh the ashtray onto the ground right with her mm -hmm. mind mm -hmm. and the whole setup after that is him being like i didn't think of that ashtray was so close to the edge i thought i had it further <laughs> back golly can you help me out here you know and it's just like not not understanding also a principal having in their office a uh, an, an ashtray for smoking mm -hmm. is you know written during the 1970s we, it was a different time so that's that segment we got another segment coming up here this is one that i suggested because i think it's fun you have named it michael Uncle Stevie's mixtape. I have. <laughs> uh, this is this is so. If if you have read Stephen King, uh, you know that the man loves music. He has a uh, a broad, broad musical taste, um, and also possibly, it's not exactly weird, um, but the way that the man tends to 
include music uh, in his fiction can, on the one hand, be brilliant, and on the other hand, just be completely puzzling uh, in terms of, like, what songs are showing up and what they're doing in a scene and so on and so forth. Uh, this is the segment where we are going to review some of the songs that get... Uh, quoted or mentioned or that are are playing in in the in the novel um mm -hmm. so uh which which songs did you listen to i listened to two songs so so uh there are a couple songs where the lyrics are quoted in the book and mm -hmm. then there are there's a slate of songs that are going to be performed at the prom i don't know why you would have that on the prom invitation i guess that was a thing you did back then just to give you a sense of the vibe i don't know mm -hmm. Uh, but so I listen to songs off of that. I listen to two songs. I listen to Dean Martin's "The Street Where You Live" and I listen to uh, Bob Dylan's "Mr. Tambourine Man." <laughs> these are two songs that are played at the prom. At the tell prom. Me, tell me about these, Cameron. Uh, okay. Well, we're gonna rate these things on one to five stars. Uh, okay. "The Street Where You Live," solid three stars. Uh, it's just a Dean Martin song. Like, it's not any more, it's any, not any less. If you like Dean Martin, you're probably going to enjoy this song. Three stars, although if I had to rate it based on uh, its appropriateness for the prom, zero stars. Because <laughs> it's terrible. Uh, for that. For, I don't mm -hmm. even know what you would do. I don't even think you can slow dance to that song. But uh, the 1970s were a weird time. Other song, Mr. Tambourine Man, Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. One star. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't is, like Bob yeah. Dylan. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> I, think I think Bob Dylan is terrible. Uh, sorry to report to everyone. Uh, I just don't care for it. But uh, one star, and also, how do you dance to Mr. Tambourine Man at the prom? I, don't, I also don't, but anyway, I'll let well, it go. Those are my two songs. Uh, the songs that I listened to were uh, <laughs> Just Like a Woman, also by Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. um, this is one that I don't... It's not listed in the prom, uh, like, invitation, but I do think it maybe plays at the prom or maybe it plays at the roadhouse. I'm not sure. Uh, and then I listened to 500 Miles by Peter, Paul, and Mary, which is also a song that is played at the prom. Mm -hmm. um, let's go through this. Just Like a Woman by Bob Dylan. Uh, two, two stars? Two and a half stars? Like, I don't, I don't hate Bob Dylan, but, like, this is a Bob Dylan song. It sure is. I don't know how you would dance to this at prom. 500 Miles, Peter, Paul, and Mary. I actually think five stars. I think this is a good song. I like this song. Again, I do not know how you dance to this at prom. And I just want to point out, every single song on the prom invitation is, like, this 60s folk music. It's all <laughs> Bob Dylan and Peter, Paul, and Mary, and then, like, this Dean Martin song. It is so strange. Um, and I, I was obviously not around in, in the 70s, um, but, like, 1979, when this book takes place, is the, the like, like disco, right? Disco <laughs> yes. is happening. Yes. It is huge. Um, and of course, Stephen King is writing it into the future, so maybe he doesn't know as much, but it's just, it's, and maybe it's, it's rural Maine and no one wants to listen to disco, but. I mean, where's like CCR, man? You know what yeah. I mean? Like, right, there's on. no, there's no rock the music. That's actually the thing that surprised me is like, I, I know Stephen King tends toward kind of the classic rock and there's none of that here. Yeah, at this point, it was contemporary rock. <laughs> right? <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe he only likes things once they're classics, right? Because yeah. we're eventually going to get to the point where we're reading these books, and it's going to be like obscure roadhouse music from the 1970s, which is clearly what he was listening to at the time. So I don't know. I have no. I, I don't have any logic. If you've got an answer to this question, I would love to hear it. 
it would help us out uh, a whole, whole lot. So, Michael, what's the uh, next book we're reading, the chronological order of reading all the Stephen King novels? The next novel we will be reading is Stephen King's second novel, Salem's Lot. It's a good one. Yep. I, I think I've probably read it more than the other Stephen King book. I don't think that's the case for me, but I know I've read it a couple times, and I do like it. And it's very interesting. It's it, I'm, I'm very excited looking forward, um, because if Carrie is Stephen King in kind of a particular Stephen King mode, and Salem's Lot is like another type of Stephen King, right? Another type of novel that he writes uh, sort of different versions of moving forward in the same way that we're going to get different versions of kind of the uh, the carry setup, right? Not not like the specific plot, but sort of the feeling and tone and um, aim, right? The ambition of the story. Uh, he has this kind of, he has these two modes that he bounces back uh, and forth between. Um, and it'll be really cool, I think. I forgot to bring this up a minute ago, but I think it's a good way to outro it. You were telling me, Michael, mm -hmm. that there was originally a, a different ending to Carrie. Yes. Uh, so apparently uh, in the first draft of this novel, the end uh, was completely different because when Carrie uh, lost it at prom, she didn't just psychically destroy everything. She, in fact, grew horns and got really tall and stomped around like Godzilla or something. And King's uh, editor, or would-be editor, right, the person who was like, please, for the love of God, write a book that I can buy and sell, <laughs> um, did not like this ending. And they apparently, you know, had had a lot of back and forth about how to make the ending of this book. Um, I believe the, the editor's actual comment was like, not a comic book. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just want to uh, take a moment and imagine the world where we, we've already said Stephen King is not always great at endings. Imagine the world where Carrie comes out and the end is Carrie transforming into a kaiju. Mm -hmm. And like, that's what her psychic power does. <laughs> it's bad. It's awful. <laughs> but I, but on the other hand, I want to see Brian De Palma do it. <laughs> Well, uh, we'll maybe continue to learn about some other uh, things that got cut or changed as we move into Salem's Lot. Uh, we're going to spend the next month reading that, and then we'll reconvene to discuss it. In the meantime, uh, you can keep up with us uh, and all the things we do with Range Touch uh, at the Range Touch Twitter account. That's twitter.com slash range touch. Uh, you can also go to rangetouch.com to, to see updates and uh, things of that nature there. Um, and of course, most importantly, Patreon.com slash range touch is where you can shoot us a couple dollars to help us keep this thing going. As Cameron said at the beginning, this podcast would not exist without uh, Patreon. Um, we are doing this. It's all for you. It's all for you, dear listener. So if you are a person who backed us specifically because you wanted to see this show in the world, thank you so much. Um, we are very excited to do it and we want to continue to do it. If you're someone who is just listening and is like hey these these guys are undertaking a completely godless endeavor um and they're going to get themselves destroyed and i want to see that happen you can help that happen uh that's patreon.com slash range touch uh cameron where can they find you twitter.com slash c Kunzelman. and if you want to hear more from me you can find me on twitter uh twitter.com slash warren is dead and I don't know what sort of what is a good line for us to end on. Well, I, you know what? I need to say this too. Leave this in. We had, we didn't get a dear reader at all in this book. 
no, there's not even like a little intro. For a while, yeah. he was going I mean, through writing in, little you know, intros, the little wasn't intros, he? you know, and and just narratorially saying like, and, you know, dear reader, you think something good's going to happen, something bad's going to happen. So I'm wondering where that shows up, but that's just my my idle thought at the end. Uh, no, I don't know. Uh, maybe we should say uh, let, let's workshop some things right here, Michael. Let's just keep it in the loop. We'll leave it in. We'll, okay. we'll see people right. see the process. Yeah. So let's. Uh, so number one, I think. Uh, uh, the um uh hail the walking dude and remember <laughs> folks hail the walking dude <laughs> remember to align yourself with evil mm-hmm. uh um 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 oh god this is the 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 comic-con version thank you sigh for listening oh yeah there we go yeah mm-hmm. um what else uh, what else we got here uh remember don't use a cell phone or uh, you'll turn into a zombie <laughs> a little bit of a, of a later vintage maybe not quite as uh, broad in terms of cultural recognition mm-hmm. uh but it works oh um, uh hey y'all remember we all float down here <laughs> so be sure to float back this way later <laughs> later next month <laughs> when we'll be talking about just king things <laughs> <laughs>